to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we'll be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 35 in particular. But before we get to the issue at hand, Rich has a boatload of retroactive history for you. The most robust retroactive history in show history. So let's get to it. One, a tip of the cap to Dan Rapoli and Tim DeForest. After my look for Judge Reinhold comment for the Pat Benatar video, Shadows of the Night, Dan came back at me with, and Bill Paxton. What? Had to go watch the video again. And sure enough, there he is, standing next to the Nazi commander with the swagger stick. And Tim came back at me after my jive about the British pilot, Brown, not Bishop, in Dream of Death, maybe wearing a Cleveland Browns uniform instead of a Bishop's robes, despite the team not existing until 1945, with the comment of wearing the uniform of the St. Louis Browns baseball team instead, which did exist in 1918. The franchise became the Baltimore Orioles in 1953. Listener participation, Max. Well thought out comments. Two, as reported in an earlier episode of the show, I'd gone down to Sue Glansman's in the summer of 2022 to do a bunch of chores for her, which included replacing a tattered U.S. flag that Sam had put up before he died five years ago. I kept that flag. I took three stripes, 34 stars, one for each year of the marriage, and a photo of the two of them and made a framed mosaic as a gift for Sue then presented it to her at Sam's grave in mid-October 2022. She loved it and knows right where she wants to hang it. I cut out the other stars and kept them as keepsakes. Maybe I'll create a contest for our listeners to earn one. Stay tuned. I brought my parents along with me so they all met and Sue crowed praises about me to my mom, which I'm sure she loved. Three, Max's Marshall Brody and ad call out made me do some research. For the album, I found a truly horrifying picture of him as Wizzo the Wizard from the TV show Bozo's Circus. He died in 2019 at the age of 84 due to Alzheimer's complications. Four, I already Bob, I already had Bob Weasek's signatures on other books, but upon finding out he had done inking work in Weird War Tales 51 and 53, I had to go to the Albany Comic Con in late October and get him again. I made his day, as I quite often do on creators with my DC war book drops, because he's pretty sure no one had ever asked him to sign weird war tales before. He remembered one of the storylines, too, about killing vampires with UV flashlights. I am sad to report that he is practically blind now and needed help to sign the books. Five, there, last time there was a question about why Frank Redondo would sometimes sign Q on his work. He sometimes went by the alias Kiko Redondo, Q-U-I-C-O, and obviously shortened that to Q from time to time. And as long as we're going over aliases for Francisco Redondo, he and his brother Nestor would sometimes both use the pen name Fred Redondo. Six, last one, really, a left field reference here going way back. I made a reference on the Facebook page early in the show's history about visiting the Superman house in Cleveland, Ohio, but I've never actually referenced it in the podcast. Can't have that. 
10622 Kimberly Avenue is the spot in 1932 that 18-year-old Jerry Siegel invented the Man of Steel, arguably the most successful literary creation of the 20th century. With its colorful porch flowers and new siding, the former Siegel residence is the best-looking home in a hard-scrabble neighborhood. It's still lived in as a house, and its current owners have said they will give a local Superman society first crack at buying it when they leave. In return, the society helps to keep the place up now. I had kids run out to my car when I slowed down when I visited a few years ago, asking me if I wanted to buy a Superman shirt. Yeah, sorry, kid. But hey, next time any of our dear listeners are in Cleveland, after you visit the Superman house, the A Christmas Story house has been restored to movie appearance and is a site you can go inside. I have. There's a museum gift shop right across the street. It, too, is in a residential neighborhood. And parking can be very hard to find, especially as the holidays approach. Intel report. Sergeant Werewolf. Created by Rich Woodall for Scout Comics. Released September 2022. Sergeant Steve Hovater leads a small group of U.S. commandos to infiltrate Liechtenstein Castle in Germany and recover intel on Nazi occult operations. The commandos are captured and Sergeant Hovater is executed. Hours later, Sergeant Hvater tra- is transformed into a werewolf and uncovers a much more sinister plot at Castle Liechtenstein. The Nazis are trying to evoke the Norse god of thunder, Thor, to aid them in their war efforts. Sergeant Werewolf must save his team from this castle of horrors, but he'll have to go through an army of golems first. Gotta say, though, it very quickly becomes abundantly clear that he's not a werewolf, but a wolf man. Huge difference. Yeah, Sergeant Werewolf just has, it's just a cool name. I, I have this comic in, in digital form from way before uh, Rich put it out through Scout Comics. So I have a giant PDF of this that I bought straight from him. I do believe there's something in there about uh, the Norse god of wolves or something like that. So it's it's kind of like he's transformed by the divine into a wolf-like form. So yeah, he's not technically a werewolf. He's just your wolf man, and he doesn't need the full moon or anything like that. Uh, going back to the Christmas story house exhibit, did you bring your dog inside and let them run around like those dogs that destroyed the uh, the Christmas feast or whatever in the, in the movie? Nah, but, but the funny thing is that the scene where, you know, where, where Ralphie is shooting the bad guys and they jump over the fence and the one of them rides off on a horse— there's actually a very steep embankment at the backside of that fence that drops off into a steel yard. There's no horse that's going to be walking around on the opposite side of that fence, okay? Ain't happen. But the funny thing is that there's they have the movie star in residence. One of the guys that delivered the leg lamp to the house lives like 10 doors down or something like that. So he's there's always a guy from the movie that's always there. And all the guys that work there are walking around with, those, with that goofy little elf hat. that the elf helpers with santa claus wear and everything it's worth going to once just for the pure kitsch level of it all (laughs) yeah man it it helps to recruit locally when you're doing a movie you know that's that's my notes on retroactive history and the intel report such as they are right now we're going to give you all a break catch your catch your breath rest your brain from all that info dump and you can think about another excellent podcast while we run a promo right here and when you've recovered we'll come back we will tackle the issue at hand 
Hey Mike, have you heard about my new podcast? Oh, what's that? Oh, it's where you talk to people on your computer and then put it out on the internet. (sighs) Yes, I know what a podcast is, Paul, but but what's the show you're doing? Yeah, I'm going to talk to people on my computer and then put it out on the internet. And uh, what's this called? Uh, Since it's a chat show and I really want to talk to interesting people about interesting things, I thought I'd call it something that was, you know, self-explanatory, like Dial F for Flanger. Right. Dial F for Flanger. Cool. Uh, I look forward to my guest spot. When are you going to have me on? Uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, I'll, I'll get back. Wow. Well, if you'd like to hear Paul chatting away on this Dial F for Flanger show, you can find it on the Waiting for Doom Network. And we're back. So, like I said at the top of the episode, today we're taking a look at Weird War Tales number 35, and as is SOP around these parts, Rich is going to hit you with the cover details. Art by some dude named Luis Dominguez. Never heard of him. Uh, 25 cents. The yellow Weird War Tales title rests on a blue sky. A blonde American soldier in tattered winter gear is engaged in hand-to-hand combat with an ape-like creature wielding a knife. Both are on the edge of a drop-off. The creature is wearing boots, shorts, and an ammo belt and bandolier. Surrounding the two combatants are several other creatures dressed the same way as the one fighting. They wave spears and automatic weapons as they cheer their comrade on. Cover date, March 1975, data release, December 26th, 1974. No killjoy for this. Take it away for your CNC, sir. Comments and commendations such as they will be from me. Good drawing, bad cover, in my opinion. It just looks unfinished. LD has given us so many silent covers that have totally worked for me that it really struck me just how badly this one falls flat. There just really needed to be some blurbery or word balloons or something to spice this up. To me, it looks like a draft that missed a step in production. The uh, American has forced the creature to one knee, so despite being unarmed, he appears to be winning. Of course, if he does win, the others will probably tear him to pieces. There had been five Planet of the Apes movies in the six years leading up to the release of this issue, and you can't tell me that that's a coincidence. If not for the hair, you might think they were apes. This is a fight to the death. This isn't too bad a cover, in my opinion. So, uh, my opinion counts once in a while when my wife's not around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, she, you know, I can see behind you remembering the camera. You can't. So, since I spoke badly of the cover, I guess I should handle the cover story as penance. It's called The Invaders. It's 10 pages long. Script is by Jack Olek, veteran of the series, and art is by someone who I'm not familiar with, Abe Ocampo, O-C-A-M-P-O. And Ocampo was his name-o. The synopsis... M-O-U-S-E. <laughs> M-O-U-S-E, yes. The synopsis to The Invaders goes like this. It's the cover story, as I mentioned. An army patrol searching for a cargo plane that was lost flying over the Himalayas finds the wreck, surrounded by abominable snowmen. Bumbles! (laughs) From a distance, it looks like the snowmen are looting the crash, and the lieutenant orders his men to open fire to avenge the crew. You know, 
always shoot first. In actuality, the crew had all died in the crash. The American fire cuts down most of the snowmen, including the chief. The chief's son, Curly, I'll get to that, doesn't know why the humans want to kill them. The chief replies, because to them, we are animals. They've hunted us for so long, they don't even remember why. Run while you still can. Curly refuses to leave his father and carries him off to a small ice cave where they hide from the searching Americans. I'm dying, Curly, the chieftain says, but I can't die until I tell you. Only the chief of our people knows our history. Now you will be chief. You must know who we are and who the humans are. You must know why they have always hunted us. And we go to some flashback panels here with, even though he's dying, a rather happy-looking chief explaining the secret history of the snowmen, which goes a little something like this. Once, thousands and thousands of years ago, we were different than we are now. In those days, we were almost human. That was when the first spaceship came to Earth from Mars, when Earth was still young. And that was when they began to destroy our race. We did not want war, but what could we do? They were not interested in our kind of peace. So there was slaughter. It went on and on, but there could be only one end. One day, there were only a few of us left. We had to run, to hide. They drove us to the mountains, and we changed so that we could survive. We became as we are now, as they spread over the earth, the chief continued. Curly is enraged at the tale and swears to make the humans pay. But the chief continues. No, he's still not dead yet, folks. There has been enough killing. That is why only our chief ever knows the truth, so that our race will not hate, hate only leads to suffering. I mean, more killing. <laughs> is what it actually says in the book. The chief suddenly realizes soldiers are coming. He begs Curly to leave. As chief, the people will need him. Tears running down his face, Curly flees. His grief soon turns to anger. He goes to the nearby airfield, kills a sentry, and takes his weapon and bandolier before returning to his people. Curly tells his people everything. Yeah, good thing keeping your word there, Curly. And demands that they make war on the humans. The elders are shocked and try to make Curly see reason. But his hate is a burning flame. Peace. We have always wanted peace. And look at us. They rule our world. They hunt us like beasts. Once we ruled the earth. Now we hide and tremble. Will you wait until they kill us all? Curly's rage sweeps across his people. No! Death to the Martians! If we must die, at least we can die fighting. Yes! Curly exclaims. We have nothing to lose but our lives. Let it be war! Next day, the U.S. patrol is ambushed and wiped out by a group of the snowmen. The lieutenant is ordered to hire a Sherpa guide and find, kill, or capture the snowmen. But it wasn't that simple. Using the Americans' captured weapons, 
the snowmen ambushed this patrol as well, inflicting heavy casualties before they withdrew. Two more patrols suffer likewise. Next, they attack the local Sherpas. The Sherpans are Martians, just like the others, Curly exclaims. Every day they search for our hiding place. Have you forgotten so soon what they did to us? What they took from us? A nearby U.S. patrol sees the Sherpa village burn and knows what happened. It's an opportunity. A scout plane is ordered aloft to search for the snowmen, and it finds them filing into a cave. Pilot radios the coordinates, and soon a huge column of soldiers is headed for the snowmen's lair. Curly and the others are celebrating, wiping out the Sherpa village, and plan to soon attack the airfield itself. But a sentry warns them that the soldiers are coming. We do not run. Our running days are over. They climb to their deaths. Charging out of their cave to attack the soldiers, they are instead subjected to an airstrike. Bombs bring a million tons of ice raining down upon those inside. Only a handful survive, and all but Curly are killed as he leads a charge against the Americans. He fights savagely. The weight of numbers wears him down, and he is captured. Thieves! Murderers! And you call us monsters! No, Curly, a voice says. There is only one monster here, and that monster is you. Curly is shocked to see his father standing with the soldiers. They had found him after Curly had left and taken care of him, but now he wishes that he had died. Do you know what you have done? Our race, our people, they've gone. Only you and I are left. I know, but I only did what I had to do. At least we had our revenge. These Martians have our world, but we've made them pay at least a little for taking it from us. You made them pay? They brought me here to talk to you. You, you're the murderer. I'd give anything not to have told you. If I hadn't, we wouldn't be the last of our kind. I thought you understood, but you were blinded by your lust for revenge. A revenge you had no right to take, you poor blind fool. They aren't the Martians. We are. Twist ending. There's no killjoy. <laughs> I'll take a rest and let Rich do his C&C here. Yep. Remember what I said about the cover? I stand by it. Even the way Ocampo draws the abominable snowman and draws heavily, to me, on the movies. But because I'm going first here, I get to make the I will hug him and pet him and squeeze him and call him George reference from the Bugs from the Warner Brothers 1961 Bugs Bunny cartoon, Abominable Snow Rabbit. You go back and reread the three panels where the chief tells the backstory and so much doesn't make sense. If they were the Martians, why didn't they just leave? More importantly, why didn't the chief just come out and say they were the prisoners? Because he had to be all enigmatic. The slaughter is technically his fault. You get the twist ending, though, with the timeless tale of how hate destroys everything it touches. Favorite panels? Let's go with the splash page of Curly swinging his Thompson like a club and page nine, panel three of Curly charging, firing directly toward the viewer, a la Sergeant Rock with the belts of machine gun ammo slung over his shoulders. Yeah, didn't like this one too much. Ah, you think you didn't like it. Here we go, folks. This was an absolute slog for me. The writing and the art just seemed to team up 
to keep me from finishing this story. To be fair, the first page got my hopes up a little bit. The splash panel seemed to take a decent step toward fixing what I thought was wrong with the cover, even if it overstepped by pretty much telling half the story in one panel, and in my opinion, better than it gets told in all the pages to come, and the rather strangely relaxed host setting up a discussion of war refugee issues up top, it almost seemed like my disappointment with the cover was about to be assuaged. However, then I turned the page. First of all, the snowman. 100% articulate, but also 100% naked and 100% without their own tools? Odd. And on page two, panel three, we discover one of them is named, as you learned in the synopsis, Curly. So, press Mo. They don't even give me that <laughs> to go off of. They name the snowman Curly, and there's no Mo, there's no Larry, there's no Joy. There's no sunshine to be had in this story, okay? And speaking of the story, such that it is, one of the worst examples of writing for the twist that I have ever seen, even in the pages of Weird War Tales. Page three, panel three, all the Elder had to say is our first spaceship to clear up the whole deal. That's it. One word, whole thing's done. Then on page five, when Curly yuck, is rousing up the rebel, the Elder never speaks about the whole Martians thing. He, he could have just said it. It is just dumb. You can just feel the story trying to trick you but it's doing such a bad job that you just end up wondering why you're still reading it. And the art doesn't help. The drawings are okay, I gotta say. The drawings are okay, but it's the layouts too. It's just so crowded. So many close-ups, so much boring dialogue, and everything looks so monochrome that it all becomes the comic book equivalent of multi-sensory snow blindness. See page four, panels two through six for the best example of this. For a spotlight panel, because you know I'm a positive guy, I'll pick page six, panel one, the combat scene with all the savagery of an ad for a barrel full of monkeys toy. Ugh, not good. So we get a little break here from diving right into the next story. And uh, we're, we're going to go over and check the mailbag at the APO Weird War Tales office. And I know I'm first in the script, Rich, but I just talked, so you read your letter first. Yes, APO Weird War Tales this generally covers uh, issue 30, Elements of Death, Dream of Death, and the Homecoming Story. My letter is from Larry Hollis from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Dear Joe. Responding to your comment to R. DeGroff in number 30 about reader response, I have not written to a comic since Two-Fisted Tales or Frontline Combat, EC. Oh, two awesome books. Being a Vietnam veteran, I particularly enjoyed Homecoming and suggest you print more stories about my generation's war. It makes your magazine seem more timely and relevant. War comics have run dry using the sadistic Nazi or evil Jap themes. Even Korea is but a faint memory to anyone under 40. As for the name Joe Orlando, I've never forgotten your work with the other EC greats. Just a quick letter. I liked it, you know, just because that story was the first Vietnam story that had popped up in these pages. And I think you actually talked about it 
in that episode you would the, the heroes welcome and everything so yeah the guys that were coming home you know from in country and stuff like that yeah those guys were the ones that are getting yelled at and screamed at and spat on and stuff but the pow's that were coming home those they were the ones that had the family waiting for them and stuff like that the, the, the returning prisoners were given the the heroes welcome to be fair I can see us having another. At some point, obviously, there's going to be other Vietnam stories in this in this story. Because, like I said, you have to remember this. This book comes out in 1974. Saigon hasn't fallen yet, so there's a lot still going on in that corner of Southeast Asia. So there's there's going to be more Vietnam stories, and I look forward to them. Right on. Well, my letter that I've chosen to spotlight here starts out, dear Joe. Homecoming was itself worth the price of Weird War number 30. So another vote for that story right there. Jack Olek is one of my favorite writers. Incidentally, I recently picked up the two paperback House of Mystery adaptations written by Jack and enjoyed them immensely. I hope more paperbacks based on DC titles are planned, like Weird War maybe? Comes from Steve Blakely of Decatur, Indiana. Now, Okay, the editorial response is, right now, there's no WWT paperback planned, but if anyone up in the executive suite gets the idea, we'll let you know. Now, my question about this is, first I'm thinking, are these early trade paperbacks that we're talking about? Because today, we we live in you know the industry of everything's available in reprint, hardcover, whatever format you want. The entire history of comics is out there for sale, reprinted. That didn't used to be the case. Now, I'm looking at the letter, but I'm thinking it might be something different, too. So I got to look into this. House of Mystery adaptations written by Jack Olek. Are they talking about a prose adaptation of the comics? Because Jack didn't write all the House of Mystery stories. So if he was adapting House of Mystery stories into prose novel form, I'd like to find out about that. So obviously, I didn't do any research yet because I don't. Rich is raising his finger here. So he uh, is going to chime in. Well, as I've said multiple times in the past, I read a couple issues ahead. And issue, the next issue of Weird War Tales is is the 64-page giant. I mean, it's loaded with stories and everything else. There's a two-page letters page in it, and there are extensive text blocks in it about you know how Weird War Tales came to be, the inspirations for the series and everything else like that. So when we get to that episode, we're, you know, we're going to dive, you know, full on into the conversations in the in, the, uh, in that episode of Weird, uh, Weird War Tales. So hopefully some of the questions that we have will get answered once we get to that episode. All right. Looking forward to it. So we took a little break, swung around and checked the mail. And now Rich is going to bring you into the second story in the issue. Take it away. Night of the Blood Feast. Three pages. Script by George Cashdan, art by someone's favorite, uh, Frank Robbins, I think is his name. Synopsis. In the aftermath of a bloody battle, the lucky survivors are brought to a German field hospital. Major Klaus Heimrich, MD, commands the hospital with a cold, cruel efficiency. He orders that no blood or bandages be wasted on hopeless cases. As his staff continues to toil over casualties, Heinrich goes to his office, where he's surprised by an elderly man asking for help. I am just a humble inhabitant of the land you have conquered, Monsieur Doctor, but I am in need of a transfusion. I suffer from a rare disease. If I do not receive blood soon, I will surely die. 
Heimrich is shocked. While soldiers of the Fuhrer lie dying, you dare ask for blood? What is that object you hide around your neck? Heimrich pulls out a Star of David pendant from under the old man's clothes. I thought so. Get out of here, Jew. Our pure Aryan blood would probably kill you anyhow. A change comes over the old man, his fingernails and canines elongating and an eerie edge to his voice. I simply cannot leave, Monsieur Doctor. I suffer from a rare disease which only the blood of a human can cure. Anyone's blood will do, even yours. Heinrich screams as the old man lunges for him. His staff comes running, only to discover a colorless corpse, fang marks in his throat, and every drop of his blood drained. As the old man runs off under a full moon, he wonders if Heinrich would have believed him if he had told him right out that he was a vampire. And I'll do the killjoy, although I'll, I'll take full credit and admit that I missed it. A vampire wearing a Star of David. Can you walk around in broad daylight, too? <laughs> a special kind of subspecies of vampire. <laughs> it's consistent, though. I'll give them that. <laughs> they keep messing that up. And I'm like, yeah, sorry, but Robbins went way over the top drawing the vampire's fangs. Looks like a damn walrus. Page three pedal. Look at those things. When you only have three pages to tell a story, you have to get to the point and cash in. My favorite shot is page one, panel one. In the upper left corner of the skeletal narrator in surgical garb, pouring himself a champagne glass of blood. Like I said, totally missed the killjoy, but that's why Max is on the staff. Eh, occasionally I come in handy. You never know. So, for my CNC, okay, Frank Robbins. Good sign for me. Let's turn this issue around, folks. Awesome splash panel. You're damn right. Robbins is in the house. What? What, what do you mean? I have to read the actual story, but I was happy. I, oh man. Hey, guess what? This story sucks. <laughs> and that's not just a joke about blood. Yeah, yeah, three pages, no excuses. The page count is not a mystery to the people who take the job. And the surprise vampire is wearing a Star of David, as we mentioned. Plus, the irony that they're trying to set up here just doesn't even work. In fact, you could almost feel sorry for the guy trying to conserve supplies as the war turns against his side. I know he's a Nazi, but still, just dad, stupid. The art, however, is great. I personally love the great big vampire tusks. It makes them even more monstrous and surprising, but I'll grant everybody listening, I love the liberties and exaggerations that abound in Frank Robbins' stuff. A lot of people can't stand it, and I, I, I get that this would be a tooth too far for most people, but I loved it. So instead of the tusks, I'll choose page two, panel one, where Robbins gives us a wide shot of the hospital floor for my spotlight panel, just a sign of how he can rein it in and be immersive and realistic when he wants to. And he didn't have to do all that work for that, for that establishing shot, but he did. And I'm gonna draw some attention to that because it's not always just big dramatic exaggerations in Frank Robbins line. So that story's done and it's my turn. So I'm gonna take us to historically one of my favorite features <laughs> in the Weird War Tales series. It's the day after doomsday. It's back folks. It's only here for two pages. It's scripted by Steve Skeets, who I have a lot of respect for and art by Alfredo Alcala, who we all 
have a lot of respect for. However, the synopsis goes a little something like this. A dying man crawls through the rubble, discovering a pickaxe. He excitedly runs to a nearby bank and uses it to break inside. Discovering piles of money, he throws it into the air and begins to celebrate. Mine! Mine! I'm rich! I'm rich! I'm a wealthy miser. We'll get to that. It was worthless. All this money. Post-apocalypse, of course. But after a lifetime of striving to make money, he could still dream. Suddenly, he gasps, clutches his chest, and dies, falling onto a bed of useless, filthy lucre. At least he had a final moment of joy before the end. No killjoy. And I guess I'll start the comments and commendations. Here's a recap of me getting to this part of the issue. Okay, day after doomsday. This feature has really surprised me lately. So maybe this is where the issue starts to save itself in the burning barrel. Maybe, please? Reed's story. Oh, come on! <laughs> Third waste of space in a row, in my opinion. This anemic little anecdote comes across as a weak, half-ass attempt at a mad magazine story, both in the writing and, surprisingly, in the art. Alcala shows a side of his work here that I really hope never to see again. Did I mention the story was dumb? Just another watered-down attempt at a repeat of all the time in the world from the Twilight Zone. And the guy doesn't even get to live to suffer the irony of his foolishness. Just eh. I guess the fact that he knew he was dying and just wanted to be rich for a moment adds a slight wrinkle to things, but you really gotta dig for it there. I give up. That was what the pick was really for. Yeah, total agreement. Space filler. One of the weakest day after Doomsday stories yet that says something. <laughs> Hated it. Like I said before, I know there's only so much you can do with two pages, but, you know, I think I'd rather have one long, good story than two short, crappy ones. Favorite panel? The first one of the man crawling through the rubble. And I guess I'm next on the uh, script here, so I'm just going to keep on talking. Next story, last story. To Helen Back. Five pages. Script by Jack Olick. Art by personal favorite, George Evans. December 23rd, 1917. Flight Captain Jeffrey Hamilton is frustrated by constantly watching the new pilots assigned to his squad squadron being shot out of the sky like clay pigeons. He avenges two of them on today's mission, but complains to his commander when he returns. These new men don't have a chance. They're raw inexperienced. The major cuts them off. They're soldiers, just like you and I are. I know how you feel, but we've got a job to do. Can't stop and cry over them if men die. You're the only veteran I have left. I need you. Get some rest and stop torturing yourself. That's an order. As Hamilton leaves the major's office, he sees two more replacements, babies, arrive and laments their probable fate. That night, Hamilton thrashes in his bed, dreaming of enemy guns downing the replacements. I can't let it happen again. I won't. I've got to find a way. The next morning, Hamilton is shocked to discover the new pilots, Cruz and Atkins, have been assigned with him to that day's patrol. His protests to the Major are acknowledged, but are for naught. The wing has ordered the mission. They had no choice. As Hamilton climbs into his cockpit, the Major asks him to take care of the new pilots. It's Christmas Eve, after all. 
It would be a happy Christmas if he brought them back. Hamilton promises, I'll bring them back, even if I have to come back from hell to do it. Hours later, a whole squadron of Fokker triplanes pounces on the three spads. One Fokker drops under Crew's tail, and Hamilton swoops to the rescue. As Hamilton clears Crew's tail, he doesn't see another Fokker dive on him from behind and riddle his plane. His spad dives into the beginning of a swirling snowstorm, and then the two novice pilots are alone. Even the Fokers disappear, probably returning home. Lost in the storm for an hour, Crews and Atkins know they're doomed. But then, Hamilton's riddled aircraft appears behind them, waggling his wings. The two replacements follow Hamilton right back to the airdrome. No pilot, however skilled, could have done it in that storm. But Hamilton did. The Major was overjoyed to see the three planes return. Hamilton did it! He brought them back! As the Major and the two pilots run to Hamilton's plane to congratulate him, they're stunned at what they find. Hamilton is dead. He had taken a bullet right through the head. How could a dead man bring them home? There was no answer to that question. We only know what happened on Christmas Eve. Hamilton had given the two men the gift of life, but he had given himself the greatest gift of all. Peace. Killjoy! Ah, you know, I thought I had a Killjoy when the aircraft were identified as Spads. The Spad was a French plane, but lo and behold, the Royal Flying Corps began flying them in December of 1917, which fits the story perfectly. Well done, Oleg. Comments and commendations. George Evans' World War I aviation story. I'm a happy guy. Discovering Evans is probably one of the biggest side benefits I have of doing this podcast. His attention to detail is amazing. I love the crazy color schemes on the Fokers on page one. The way he draws Hamilton's bullet-riddled spad on page four, panel four. Just incredible stuff. I'm really starting to regret never having met Evans, who died in 2001. A nice little Christmas story in the pages of Weird War Tales in an issue that came out on December 26th. Sigh. So close. Hey, it, it gives a kid something to spend their Christmas money on. That's what I would do. I'd get like a bunch of money for Christmas and everyone knew what I was going to spend it on as soon as the, the newsroom opened up after the Christmas holiday. So yeah, would have worked for me. And I, and I got to say, George Evans is a new discovery, a rediscovery rather of mine going through these issues too. And I really see what you like in him. He's, he's really growing on me too. Um, a, a lot of the plain accuracy stuff is missed on me, but you know, now that I see how carefully he renders everything, I get it. So as far as this story goes, this is much better than what's come before in these pages. So yes, I'll give it away right now. In my opinion, it's the best story yet in this issue. But still, these five pages to me felt very slow and clumsy. Felt like much longer than five pages. I don't know why. Maybe I'm in a bad mood or I was when I read this book. How rare would that be? <laughs> but plus the message of it's Christmas Eve, so vengeance from beyond the grave? Okay. It seems so tacked on that it made me tilt my head like a dog who just heard a strange noise. The art, however, as I was just saying, is fantastic throughout. Really dug it, so that helped out a lot. I'll call out the host and his ticket to Helen back on the splash page. You guys know I love a good intro logo design type thing, and this one's a killer. I love it. And I really love also 
the way that Evans handled the changes in mid-air perspective in the battle on page three, panels three to four. I mean, it handles that change in viewpoint so well. It's so smooth. And that stuff is not easy. And it's drawn incredibly well. So it isn't, in my opinion, a great story by any means. But compared to the rest of this issue, it's at least the equivalent to a pair of swimmies tossed to a man overboard. So thank you to George Evans in particular for that. So that's it for the stories, people. You know what happens next? We go for a little commercial break here and choose our spotlighted ads from the issue. And since Rich took the best ad, I'm going to read the second best such that it is. This was an issue nearly bereft of, of ads worth mentioning, people. But way in the back here, there is an ad for war machines. This is a bunch of toys that are replicas of tanks and a vehicle that can drag tanks around, you know, a transporter and all that. But for me, what made this stand out was the text right beneath the big black block letters that say war machines up top. The flavor text that describes the tanks as roaring, snorting, lumbering brutes, massive chunks of fighting armor, defenders, aggressors, winners. They're authentic, incredibly so. Corgi makes them. I mean, I, I grant you, this isn't like as flamboyant as some other ads we've spotlighted, but I'm a man in the desert looking for a drop of water here, people. And Rich took the only full bucket for hundreds of miles. So the fact that these vehicles are described as roaring, snorting, lumbering brutes amused me, so it makes the cut. Now, Rich, hit him with the razzle-dazzle. I'm very disappointed that you didn't make the old Corgi Boy reference from those other ads from other issues. <laughs> it didn't deserve it. <laughs> Corgi Boy, the ads for Corgi Boy are, are 700 million miles above this thing. I'm not going to mention Corgi Boy in reference to this lazy piece of work right here. So, <laughs> so as I said, give us the refreshment we're all looking for. Habit Trail is a hamster wonderland as seen nationally on TV. Habit trail sets for hamsters are lots of fun, and you can learn a lot from them too. But the best thing of all is building them and adding to them and watching them grow and grow and grow any way you want to do it. You can keep on adding to it. And yeah, I'm sure you know those of us of a certain age will kind of, will kind of remember these things of these great big yellow plastic tubes that you know the hamster would run around from like habitat to habitat and it'd be like this the wheel and the water bottle and everything else like that add on sky pet house habitrail tubes deluxe set fun house with mini gym habitrail starter set add on sleeping den with curiosity cube habitrail and habitrail add-ons from living world Look for Habit Trail wherever pet products are sold. <laughs> oh, the 70s. That, that ad is so great. It's a hand-drawn ad, too, so we're not talking photos of the Habit Trail stuff. It's, it's a drawing of a giant assembled kit with all the bells and whistles, and then those bells and whistles kind of broken out for individual features below, like here's how much the mini gym will cost you or whatever. But what struck me looking at this ad, I never had a hamster. Didn't care about having little rodents that can't control when they poop or whatever, even when I was a little kid. So I never saw the habit trails in real life, I don't think. 
Certainly heard about them, saw the commercials. What struck me looking at these drawings, if they're drawn to scale, is how freaking claustrophobic that thing would be, even for a hamster. Look at how thin those tunnels are and the little penthouse. Like these, that's pretty small, even for a hamster. The little rooms are okay. And then I gotta wonder, in that little claustrophobic transparent nightmare uh, that's going on there, who cleans those things? Do you just wash them in the sink? But that's gotta be one of the filthiest things that's ever been in a house. I mean, worse than a birdcage. I don't know, but the ad is amazing. It looks great. It, it's just a relic of its time. It's an artifact. And it, it's it's just about the best damn thing in this issue other than uh, Frank Robbins and George Evans drawing some pretty pictures, in my opinion. I'd jump all over that ad, even though it was Rich's spotlight ad, people. All I got was some freaking tanks. Fine! <laughs> We totally, we totally missed the Daffy Duck reel, you know, shot from the uh, day after Doomsday story. <laughs> oh, I, I did a little. Um, I'm rich. It's mine. It's mine. 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 Go, yeah, go, go. Mine, mine. Mine. I'm not trying to do a Daffy Duck voice anytime soon, right here on the show. So, uh, <laughs> with the ads out of the way, we're gonna move on into a section we like to call "You Got Me Last Words." No killjoy at all. Well. For me, anyway. Holy smoke. Very issue of WWT, but definitely bottom quarter of the pile. Might not use this one to roll up and swap flies with, but maybe I will, depending on how bothersome little bastards are. If I don't pick the hell and back as my favorite story, our dear listeners are going to wonder what Max did to the real rich. Oh, I mean, the psychological damage alone is considerable. But as for my last words... No surprise, I hated this issue. Sure, there was some pretty great art here and there, but I would never hand this issue to someone who wanted to check out the Weird War Tales series for the first time, unless I was trying to make sure they never spoke to me about the series and didn't become a fan on purpose. There were precious few decent ads, only one really, and as we said, Rich grabbed that one. It's not like even those provide a little fun for the prospective new reader of the series. Bottom of the pile for me, if not the very bottom. So, since we seem to need a little pick-me-up, we'll go check the mail again. But this time, we'll check correspondence to us, to the show, in a little section that we call the Dead Letter Office, where I remind you, you can go to redbubble.com, you can put in Weird Warriors Podcast, and you can order some freaking merchandise. You can do it. I have faith in you. Redbubble.com, Weird Warriors Podcast. Just don't even think about us. Think about how awesome that logo is that Bill Walco drew and designed for us. Put that thing on a hat, will you? We're doing you a favor here, okay? So, also in the dead letter office, (laughs) I said I was in a bad mood. (laughs) We like to talk about uh, how listeners to the show reach out and give us some likes and shares and stuff like that on social media. Things like Facebook, Twitter, which I'm not going to participate in anymore. Uh, You'll all really have known that by now. I'll be over on counter social, but who cares? Uh, Facebook page is awesome. Keep grooving on that, people. This time around, the Dead Letter Office is focusing on episode 35 of the show, where we covered Weird War Tales number 30, for the most part. On social media, we got people stopping by like Kirk Spencer of Big Five Army, Freebird Comics, relatively new follower here, David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast, 
Luke, Jack, and Nettie of the uh, Earth Destruction Directive podcast. Giant monster stuff. Really cool. The Telltale Mind stopped by. Doc Strange, Mr. Billy Delicious of Magazines and Monsters and many other shows. Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast stopped by. Herschel Nimis, the new show account for Magazines and Monsters. Uh, Doc Strange production stopped by. And let's see, Eric Olson and Bill Mooney good friend of the show here, also stopped by on social media to say hello. Now, over on Gmail, where we have an address you can write to, weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. See, pretty easy. We got a missive or two or three from a guy uh, named Jason Zeller. Hey, what do you know? He wrote in about issues 26 through 30 of the series. Hey, you trying to earn another binge listener award? Or am I just really slow about checking the Gmail? The mystery may never be solved. Jason mentioned that Rich made him laugh out loud about the colorist having one job in the Dreams of Death story featuring the Red Baron. And he gave us a really cool heads up about a recent tribute to the legendary Russ Heath in the Diamond Previews catalog. Sent us a picture of that that Rich will put in the album for you guys to check out. Very cool. Anytime anyone gives some props to Russ Heath, of course. So that was cool. Tim DeForest from comicsradio.blogspot.com, which you should all be checking out if you like old comics and especially old-time radio. He wrote in about our episode covering issue number 34, noting how the story of Anubis could be read with or without a supernatural interpretation, which we agree is a very cool line for writers to walk when they can pull it off. And that's that's still one of my favorite stories that we've ever covered, really. That one really stuck with me. In other news, as I've mentioned online, Mark Slade from Twisted Pulp Magazine also reached out to interview Rich and I for an upcoming issue of their series. So we'll have the link there. Uh, You can go check out ScreamingEyePress.com. Twisted Pulp Magazine lives there. If you're a Weird War Tales fan, odds are this mag will be right up your spookily darkened alley. And somehow someone decided to let us in an issue for, you know, for a little bit anyway. I think we behaved ourselves all right. So that's the dead letter office this time around, which was really fun. And it was a nice pick me up to go through the Gmails and all that to uh, wash the taste of most of this issue out of my mouth. So that leaves me in a pretty good mood. Well, pick me up. So for more positive energy, I'll hand things over to Rich. He'll hit you with the teaser for our next episode. All is fair in love and war, to coin a phrase. Or should I quote Pat Benatar and say, love is a battlefield. The moment we've teased a few times has finally come. What the hell am I talking about? Tune in next time and bring someone you love. Love in the podcast here. (laughs) (laughs) You'll find out real soon what that's all about, people and all. I can't wait to dive into this one. So until next time. Sit by the phone and wait for that call from your special someone, and maybe it'll be us. Who are we? We're the Weird Warriors. We're the Batlin Bros. I'm Max. He's rich. And we promise to make war. No more.